Welcome to The Conversation. I'm Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show. Joining us today is David Becker. He is the executive director at the Center for Election Innovation and Research. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Benjamin. I've had a chance to look into your background and the significance of the work that you have done for voting and voting rights, voting protection. Um, tell us a little bit about the work that you do. So I've been in elections for over two decades now. I started as a lawyer with the Justice Department and uh, first the Clinton administration and then the Bush administration do, uh, doing voting rights work in the Civil Rights Division and then eventually found my way over to the Pew Charitable Trust where I led their elections work for several years. And in 2016, I founded the Center for Election Innovation and Research, uh, and I'm still the executive director there. We're a nonpartisan nonprofit that works with election officials all over the country and in both parties, trying to make sure elections are run as well as possible and so that voters have confidence that their vote matters and will count in the civil Absolutely. rights division. Um, this seems to be a very significant issue because of the president of the United States in this moment, making it seem as though this election is going to somehow be uniquely different because of mail-in ballots. But you've written extensively about how mail-in ballots, um, we shouldn't expect any significant increase in any type of fraud of any type uh, through mail-in ballots. Tell us about the reality versus the specter that Donald Trump is casting over it. So first of all, the election will be different this year, and it's not because of the mail-in ballots, it's because of the pandemic. Um, this is the first presidential election we will have ever held in, during a global pandemic when we'll need to maintain social distancing, when we'll need to be wearing masks and make sure we're adequately sanitizing polling places, et cetera. And a lot of people don't want to vote in person. Now, I will say voting in person is still a really good option. There are going to be a lot of safe options to vote in person. And I think it's going to be at least as safe, if not more safe than, for instance, going to the grocery store. And, and Dr. Fauci has confirmed that. So if you want to vote in person, especially early, that's still a very good way to vote. But mail voting is going to be expanded like we've never seen it before. In uh, 2016, we saw about a quarter of all votes uh, being cast being mail ballots. This year it could be around half of all votes being cast being mail ballots. And, and we know from states that are doing a lot of mail voting, states like Washington, Oregon and Colorado and California, that fraud is very rare in mail voting, just as fraud is very rare in in-person voting. It's uh, not non-existent, but it's very close to being non-existent. And voters should feel secure whether they choose to vote um, their ballot by mail, um, where there are a lot of checks and balances in place to make sure that every vote is validly cast, or if they choose to vote in person where the same checks and balances are in place to make sure that only eligible voters vote and can only vote once. I want to dig into that a little more, but before we do, I want to go back to something that you said, because I had not heard it before, and I don't know how many people in the audience have actually heard that, but you said that in terms of the risk of transmission of this uh, of this virus, voting in person would be somewhat analogous, if not safer, than going to the grocery store. Could you just kind of reiterate that for the audience? Sure, especially if people plan. There's going to be options to vote early in person where you choose where you can go, where you can choose when you can go. And more and more, I'm helping advise uh, LeBron James More Than a Vote initiative, which is helping to make sure that a lot of sports arenas are used, for instance, as early voting sites. There was just some announcement today in Philadelphia about the um, Philadelphia 76ers arena being used in several other arenas all over the country, including in California, all the way across the country. So there are going to be a lot of great options to vote in places that are very large, where you can socially distance. 
where if you plan your activity, you can be in there less time than you would be in a in a grocery store. And unlike a grocery store where people might be milling about in aisles and you might be close to other people, all of the voting stations are going to be very uh, far apart, farther apart than we've ever seen them before to make sure people don't get um, have any issues. And all poll workers are going to be wearing masks and have PPE. And similarly, voters are going to have masks available if they didn't bring them. And, and will be, most will be wearing masks, of course. The equipment will all be disinfected. I've talked to election officials around the country. They are committed to making sure that those who choose to vote in person are going to have a safe experience. And you can maximize your chance of having a safe experience by planning and voting as early as possible. Hmm, early, So let's talk about those people who still, despite everything that you just said, which is reassuring to me, um, still decide to do mail-in ballots. Uh, there's such a difference from state to state in terms of the the window. Um, what can you, window for mail-in ballots, getting them in, receiving them, et cetera. Can you give us some general idea about how we should approach mail-in ballots? Right, so my, my, my recommendation here is don't focus on the differences and don't focus on the deadlines. If you wanna vote successfully, especially by mail, Focus on the early opportunities. Request your ballot now. In almost every state, you can request a mail ballot for November now. Make sure your voter registration information is up to date by checking your voter registration status on your state election website, which you can do in pretty much every state. Mm -hmm. Your ballot will be sent to you in most cases in September. Don't let that ballot collect dust. As soon as you get it, if you're ready to vote and you know who you want to vote for, and let's be honest, looking at the polling, most people do know who they're going to vote for. Right. Fill out that ballot early and return it early. You can return it as soon as you get it. And if you return it in person, you will guarantee either a Dropbox or an election office, ideally, um, you'll guarantee election officials are getting it. The sooner you get your ballot in, the more you maximize your chance that your vote will get there successfully. If you wait for deadlines, if you wait for election day, if you wait for a postmark on election day, that's when you can run into trouble. So my advice to all voters is, don't wait for election day. There is no election day. That is just the last day of voting. Mm. Vote early if at all possible, whether it's in person or by mail. Mm. And let's talk about that a, a little bit more. Um, the technical side of it. Well, actually, let me go. There. Let me go here first. There's a piece from Axios uh, that came out today that said that there's a possibility that because of mail-in ballots and so many uh, Donald Trump supporters being willing to go to the polls uh, because of the politicization of COVID-19, which we'll, we'll get to that at another time, but uh, they expect that there could be a possibility of Donald Trump winning, quote-unquote winning, appearing to win on election night. Um, and then when the mail-in ballots are counted after the fact, uh, about a week later, it will reveal itself to be that Joe Biden would have won. Uh, could you speak to that dynamic and that possibility? So uh, President Trump is going to say what he's going to say, but this election night in some ways will be different, but in many ways will be the same as previous election nights. We're always getting partial results in. Just because we see early results in a state like Massachusetts that might show Donald Trump slightly leading, or a state like Mississippi that might show Joe Biden slightly leading, of course we're not gonna assume that that's going to mean that Mississippi is going blue or Massachusetts is going red. That's ridiculous. Um, I think the chances of this are relatively slim. We know the states that are going to be close. I don't think it's any shock to, to people which states that are, are likely to have a margin that's within five percentage points or maybe even be within one percentage point or half a percentage points. And when that's the case, every responsible commentator, observer, member of the media, campaign activist, anyone is going to know that we need to wait until all the ballots are counted. But this is, again, relates to what I was saying earlier. The sooner you vote, 
the sooner you get your ballot in, the more likely it is your ballot is going to be counted on election night. If you wait until later, if your ballot is 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 delivered after election day or on election day, the chances are that your ballot might not be counted on election night and it might be one of those later ballots. I don't think we're talking about a week. I think we might be talking about at the most a day or two. But if you want to make sure that your ballot is counted on election night, get it in early and that will hopefully make make it so that the states can get the as many election results out as possible on election night so we have a clearer indication of who the winner is sooner. I don't know. Can you walk us through the process? Um, and you've already made it clear, but I just would like for you to illuminate a little more. You're saying that if they get it in vote, uh, early, it's not like these these ballots are sitting around and they don't start counting them until after or on election day. If they have them, then they're in a position to be counted by election night. But take us. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so 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 it varies by state, and actually there are some states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, where early votes and mail ballots don't they don't begin counting them or processing them until election day, the morning of election day. But they're going to have teams of people doing that, and they're going to try to get as many of them done as they can. But there are a lot of states. Florida is a great example where they are counting those ballots. They are starting to process those ballots, and I should say not counting, but processing the ballots, so they're ready for counting well before election day. Florida, I think, is actually going to um, do a very good job this election. I think we might get the results um, relatively early in a state like Florida. There are many other states, Arizona's another one, where I fully expect that we'll have results fairly um, fairly early, relatively in the, you know, the, the late evening or early morning hours of um, November 3rd and 4th. But it will vary by state. Probably states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin will take a little bit longer. But the earlier votes are in, the more likely it is they can be processed at the beginning of Election Day, even in those states, so that they can report them out. If the ballots that come in on Election Day, um, especially the ones that aren't voted in person on Election Day, those might take a little bit longer to count. So basically, the bottom line is if you don't plan on voting early in person or voting on Election Day, absolutely under no circumstances should you wait any longer than you absolutely have to to get that mail-in ballot in. We always focus on deadlines, and especially in a presidential election, there are a lot of voters who are not frequent voters who um, maybe are doing it for the first time and haven't planned and haven't had a lot of experience in doing this. This is going to be a different year, and I cannot urge voters enough. Plan, do it early, get your vote in early. The chances are that your vote will be successfully counted, that you will have no problem, that you don't need to worry about it, and that your ballot will be counted on the earlier side, as soon as it possibly can on election night, goes way, way up. You'll be doing election officials a favor, and you'll be doing your fellow voters a favor, because there are voters who are going to need to vote on election day in person. And the fewer people that need to vote on election day in person means the shorter the lines are for those people voting. So do all of your fellow citizens a favor, and if you can, plan, do it early. Absolutely. David Becker, who is the executive director for the Center for Election Innovation and Research. First, thank you so much for your work and all this valuable priceless information that you've given us. Thank you, Benjamin. Welcome back. Joining me now is Max Burns. He's a Democratic strategist, columnist with The Daily Beast. Uh, Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
Our pleasure. Uh, your recent article in Business Insider, um, you wrote that Trump's latest COVID-19 relief proposal is just another tax cut for the wealthy in disguise. Um, I, I don't think that's going to come as a shock to many in this audience. But could you uh, unpack a little bit of that and, and let us have a kind of a conversation about how we can understand just how this this supposed uh, policy is going to help people when it's actually not? Yeah, absolutely. Right now, as almost everyone knows or is personally affected by, there are about 30 million people out of work who have been dependent on this pandemic unemployment assistance, extra $600 a week in their paycheck. Now, it's rent day today. Unfortunately, there hasn't been a COVID stimulus payment in weeks from Washington, despite Republican pledges to get that out to people before the end of August. In the meantime, they've been working almost exclusively on forcing through a payroll tax cut that does nothing for people who are unemployed, but does a great deal for some of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago members and his political donors. Mm. So tell us exactly, because this is something that they spend all the time, right? They're, they're so eager to say a payroll tax cut, and then they label it as something that's going to help workers. Um, but how, how, is it, how is it going to help workers, if at all? And then show us how it's going to help uh, donors and the, and the wealthy, those that support Donald Trump? Well, there's very little in this for people who are unemployed, because as you know, as should be common sense, unemployed people don't benefit from a payroll tax cut at all, right. since they don't have jobs. How this helps large businesses is it allows them to defer the taxes they would normally have to pay until next year or 2022. And that's one of the big lies of this whole debate, is that this isn't even really a tax cut. You're going to have to pay all of this money back to the government at some point. Trump is just hoping by that point you've forgotten uh, who who put you in this position. Um, you say that the um, the meager unemployment boost to the payroll tax cut do little for actual working Americans and mostly to help the wealthy, which you you just unpacked. What I'm interested in, though, is how we get around that talking point because it seems to be something that is extremely effective in controlling the narrative. What you've explained makes sense to everybody. But as we get it into the media conversation, it kind of sticks. This is what Donald Trump said, and this is what circulates in the, in the, in the uh, media at, uh, ecosystem. Um, how do we get around that talking point and help people to understand the propaganda that's being played on us? This is something unlike social issues that actually has a timer on it. You can talk a big game and spin this and say this is a blue state problem. You can promise paychecks to people in the mail. But when those checks don't arrive, they're not going to care how you spin it. They're just going to ask where their money is. Mm -hmm. Now, in the meantime, Democrats and anyone who's been affected by this needs to actually get out and counter these narratives among friends and relatives. Uh, we see so often that the most persuasive voices are the people who have been affected by this. And when you see a family that has to choose this month between paying rent or feeding their kids, uh, what Donald Trump says from his country club doesn't have quite the same punch. Yeah. In terms of uh, what we actually can do then, right? So the Democrats have control of the House, which, which is not enough to get a bill all the way through into a law. But what can be done in terms of the Democratic Party? What should they be doing differently? It, it, it does become a little frustrating, um, especially from a commentary perspective, when you see these narratives being pervasive from Donald Trump and then no one is counter, uh, countering those narratives like you mentioned. But it, 
in addition to countering narratives, what can they strategically do in terms of the House, the powers that they have in the House that could either bring light to this situation or move the ball forward in terms of getting something for the people? So there was actually a hearing just today with Steve Mnuchin uh, on Capitol Hill where he was discussing the importance of getting to a deal on COVID insurance and COVID payments for out-of-work families. Unfortunately, he didn't actually provide any roadmap for how to do that. So it's clear that this is going to be on Democrats. Now, there's been a bill sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk for months now to provide sustained monthly payments to Americans that don't need to be the subject of a political debate every 30 days. It's going to be equally on members of Congress to force that issue, but also on voters and regular people to force their members of Congress to take this seriously. And I think if we do that, then we'll start to see the Democrats really say there is no business to be done in Congress until we address the problems facing out-of-work Americans. Yeah. So, so are you saying that isn't that something the Democrats could do anyway? Isn't that something that they should be doing, right? Um, shouldn't they bring everything to a halt? Because you just said, like, today is the first of the month, and and we really need the people in power to leverage that power. So what's holding them up? Is it that they simply need pressure from us, or could they not just take the lead and grind everything to a halt until we do something for the people? To some extent, I think there is a, a problem of Capitol Hill Democrats and the, the sort of insider media that enables that bubble, following Trump on whatever controversy he's doing mm. now. Uh, and that's to the detriment of people who really need their members of Congress to focus on the issue of making sure they can stay in their home. Now, the way we get that is direct action. There is no substitute for writing or calling your member of Congress and making sure that you're being loud about the issues that matter to you. That works, it has worked in the past, and if this is any evidence, the Republicans will cave as soon as there's the smallest amount of public pressure. That's interesting. Um, so let's talk about those 30 million people who are unemployed. And, and today, a lot of them are having to uh, make decisions in terms of food or rent. Um, and there are an increase in homelessness. Um, is there a, a, how can we have any expectation of them to participate politically like you just described? Um, obviously, there's those of us who are in better positions who could take it up and do it on their behalf. But isn't there a disconnect between the real world people who are struggling right now and the, the halls of power and all of the different machinations that we would go through in order to get them into action? Aren't the people who are suffering, aren't they already tied down with simply surviving? It's a difficult place to be in this country, no doubt. Uh, it's National Suicide Prevention Month this month, and it should be said that a lot of these people are struggling very hard. And it is a, a testament to how committed they are that activists have formed things like extendpua.org to rally unemployed people together to get this done. Because this is not regular unemployment. This mm -hmm. is something that may be going on well into next year. And when most Americans have less than $500 to spare for an emergency, you can't ask them to just sit around and wait for Congress to take it seriously. We have to fill the streets until we can fill the polling places in November. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, what can you speak to in terms of moratoriums on evictions, uh, moratoriums on uh, foreclosures? Is there anything that can be done from a federal level uh, to actually help people in the middle of evictions? There is. Unfortunately, we're only taking half measures. Uh, something Donald Trump passed today 
uh, through his desk was an executive order, allegedly more uh, ending evictions through the end of the year. Now, if you read it carefully, it doesn't actually ban evictions. It just says that once that moratorium window is closed, you're responsible for paying all the rent you didn't pay in the months that that moratorium was in place. What we need is the president to stop legislating from the Oval Office, go to Congress and pass a durable bill that actually ends the threat of eviction through this crisis. Mm. Let's say that nothing gets done through the through November. What is the most optimistic real timeline to expect relief in a Biden administration? Inauguration, first hundred days. When can we expect some type of financial relief for all of these hurting people if nothing happens during the Trump administration? I think Joe Biden has made it really clear that this is one of his 100 days, even first two weeks principles of getting help to these people who have been so connected to him and who he's built his career representing. Uh, now, that's going to be a great first step. But Joe Biden's also moved a bit to the left in saying we also need to address the root causes of unemployment, the root causes of pay inequality to make sure that we don't have to do anything like this ever again. Hmm. Um, speak to that a little. We only have about 90, uh, 60 seconds left, but speak to that specific policy. Like, what is he planning to do to address the underlying causes? Now, Joe Biden has so far uh, said that he would immediately work with Congress to pass a more substantial uh, uh, coronavirus supplemental assistance for working families, that he would take off the table things like tax cuts for the wealthy and use that money to make sure families who are now facing having to send their kids back to school or have them home have the resources to do that. And beyond that, there's a whole host of great progressive ideas in Congress about how we make this system less susceptible to the shocks we're seeing now. Hmm. I think that would come as a surprise to some of our listeners that that Joe Biden has some progressive policies in there, economic policies. I wish we had more time to explore it because I think that is extremely important. But Max, thank you so much for joining us. This is Max Burns, Democratic strategist, columnist with The Daily Beast. And his latest piece is in Business Insider. Trump's latest COVID-19 relief proposal is just another tax cut for the wealthy in disguise. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.